I'm hooked up. Good morning. Thank you for uh, for being here, and um, it's different to stand up here than to sit out there. So, uh, look forward to our time, and I hope it's uh, helpful to you. Um, it's hard to uh, just step in, as you can imagine, um, uh, and just land somewhere. So, where do you land? And and especially when you find out um, pretty late that you're going to land somewhere, then you're really struggling with where to go. So um, I've had the opportunity to be in First uh, Peter and Second Peter in recent years, and um, so my heart went there first, and, and my, my flesh went there too because I was already prepared a little for that. Um, so I want you to turn to First Peter chapter one with me, if you will. Uh, a verse that um, ha- was very impactful to me and, and warms my heart every time I read it and I hear it, and so I was drawn back to that in, in chapter one of First. Peter. And one thing that really strikes me, I'll say this on the front end, about both the epistles of Peter is to consider who he was and to consider what the Lord did with him in the book of Acts and the change that you can pick up on between the Gospels and when the Holy Spirit came and he became the de facto leader of the, uh, of the disciples. And the ministry that he had and then to read the letters that he wrote, um, it really betrays the unlearned description that we have of Peter. In fact, uh, in Acts 4, when he's brought before the leaders, they were surprised at his, um, his ability, his knowledge to speak, and uh, the fact that he wasn't trained in the scribal schools or the law schools or schools of the Pharisees. He was just a blue-collar fisherman. And yet the Lord used him in that way. And in fact, also he was a Galilean, which makes him less than the best in the eyes of Pharisees. But the Lord does amazing things with those that he chooses. So look at verse 8 and verse 9, chapter 1, 1 Peter, verses 8 and 9. Just, just two verses, but we're going to cover more than that. But this is where I want to start. It says there, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You implied obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, will you bless our time and uh, be with us as we look at your word? Will you use it to encourage us, strengthen us, empower us, Lord, to live uh, lives to your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. So, a uh, little quick question. So, what's the most repeated word in those two verses? Um, it's a personal pronoun. You. You or your, and, and the word you is actually implied. So, we're going to go there. We're going to figure out who the you is. And then, second to that is another pronoun uh, that would be him. So, there's a you and a him. If you throw this verse in front of uh, an unbeliever, there may be those that would be familiar with, with the Word of God and may be um, familiar with Christianity, and it wouldn't be so shocking to them. They might be happy for you that you have some identification or some kind of affection for that, that passage in the Word of God. So you may get that response, but for someone who's really a skeptic and maybe antagonistic to the Word of God, that would be a nonsensical statement frankly, to say that there's something that you don't see and yet it affects you. 
There's something you don't see, but you believe in it, you are joyed over it, and you actually expect something in your future from it. It's just really irrational, illogical, um, but for us who know the Lord, there's something more there. There's a sight unseen. There's a faith with eyes. And so we could go into a whole theology of, of darkness and light, of blindness and sight, of revelation, of illumination. In fact, John covers that a lot in his gospel and his epistle, first epistle. Paul covers it in multiple places, contrasting these, these type terms. And we could drill down on that, but we'll limit ourselves, even though it's really something that would be great to do, we'll limit ourselves to the text here. Now look at verse 10 through, through 12. Before we back up, let's go forward just a little bit. So there's something here that's not seen, and these people don't see it, and yet it affects their lives. But then verse 10, spending all verse 9 on this salvation, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired. They, they didn't know what they were saying and prophesying specifically. And they inquired uh, what person, verse 11, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then skipping down to the end of verse 12, this is good news sent to you by the Holy Spirit um, from heaven in the last phrase, things into which angels long to look. So this, this is just riddled with no sight, no vision, no revelation, no real understanding from a material, physical standpoint. Um, So let's back up. Let's identify who these you people are. So let's go back to the very beginning, get our bearings, and then we'll come back to verses 8 and verses 9. So at the very beginning, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to a group of people which aren't really specifically identified. They're, they're not a church, like the majority of the epistles are written to. They're not a person, like some of the epistles are written to, but they are a general group of people, hence the general epistles, which is part of where First Peter would land in the Scripture. So generally to these people among these provinces. So there's a word here that says dispersion, really, peripodemois, which gets at people who really are, um, are not of nationality, they're aliens and their citizenship, and they live there as a temporary residence. Peter also refers to this in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, I urge you, brothers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He calls them uh, exiles and strangers. They aren't people who are identified with the physical, geographical, political um, institutions of their day, just as we are as believers today. So five provinces are named, uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do, do you recognize any of those specific? Anything you can think of? Galatia. Galatia is very familiar. Obviously, Paul spent time there. Someone said Asia. So we think of this whole Turkey, modern-day Turkey area as... Um, what well, Asia Minor, I guess, historically, part of different uh, empires through, through time. But actually, Asia itself was a western part of that land. 
uh, a province. So we can speak of it all as Asia, and yet there was a specific province called Asia. Any others? So Pontus, there are actually three or four, actually four of them that are mentioned at the day of Pentecost. Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, excuse me, three of the five, can't count. Three of the five were mentioned at Pentecost. So we know that there were believers who were there on that day that would have gone back to those provinces. And then, of course, we have Galatia from the epistle of uh, Paul to the Galatians and Bithynia. It nearly, those five nearly cover that whole area of modern day Turkey. And in that area, there would have been Gentile believers who had come to Christ, but there also would have been historically um, part of the dispersion. And when we think of dispersion here, um, James mentions a dispersion that's this, just the Jewish dispersion. The dispersion here is not only the Jews who have resided around the uttermost parts of the world, going back to the Babylonian captivity and remaining outside of the homeland, the promised land of Canaan. But um, it would have included them as well as Gentiles. And there's references here in this epistle that, that we pick that up from in several different places. So we know that he's addressing these believers in those places and that they're mixed Jew and Gentile. And then going on to verse 2, it says this, According to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So he goes a little further uh, in identifying them. They are elect exiles. So how old is the church at this point? How many guesses? Would you, what would you think? 25. 25? 30? That's, I think that's really close. So if you're, if you're around... Um, the resurrection and the ascension, and then the day of Pentecost, you're in the early 30s. And Peter wrote this, the best we know, probably around the early 60s. So the church is still very young. Our church, 20 years old, just add 10 more years. It's really not that long of a time. So these Hellenized Jews and these Gentiles are living, and they're living in a place where they're strangers and they're aliens, they're exiles, they're, they're not of this world. And so really the letter probably was encyclical, um, since he didn't name a specific church or a specific person. It probably traveled somewhat of the idea like in Revelation with the seven churches, where maybe the letter would have moved around among those different provinces to who knows how many different people. So let's break it down. It says they're, they're of the dispersion. So this dispersion was going through a lot of persecution, a lot of suffering. Um, it's very obvious in this letter that, that they were scattered. They were, um, they were uh, weakened because of that in a, in a sense of, uh, of humanness. Um, and there's many direct references to that where they, uh, in this epistle, they're, they're spoken of as receiving persecution, slander, uh, suffering, pain, evil speaking. Uh, and in fact, 19 times the word suffer is repeated in this epistle. So this temporary exile, alien life uh, has produced for them some real difficult situations. Um, not the least of which is this. They're among the Roman Empire. And the leader of the Roman Empire at this time, you remember, would have been Nero. And so I know you're probably somewhat familiar with Nero. 
Um, he was himself a, a very eccentric kind of person. Um, and in fact, he, uh, he would play his lyre and sing in public before literally command performances. I guess your life was probably on the line if you didn't come and hear him. Um, politically, he forced a lot of turmoil. Uh, and um, he, uh, he led himself to the road of suicide, ultimately, at the early age of around 30. One writer described him as this, said, Nero, a man with light blue eyes, a thick neck, protruding stomach, and spindly legs. He was a crazed and cruel emperor, a pleasure-driven man who ruled the world by whim and fear. And you know his own personal family members, be it his, I believe his, his own mother, his, his wife, his mistress, he had executed in various different ways, from beheading to actually kicking one of them, actually um, blunt force, trauma, death to his, um, his actual mistress. And there's, there's other notorious stories. So this Nero brought a formal persecution to the Christians. And you probably remember that um, he set, as it were, uh, Rome on fire. Uh, in AD 64, July 18, a great fire in Rome erupted and swept through the city for over five days. And the extent was enormous. Uh, We're told that Nero wanted a new city, and the best way to do it was to destroy the old one and be done with it. And he had no regard for the life of those who lived in his kingdom. When Nero learned of people uh, pegging the rumors on him as the culprit for the fire, he tried to find a scapegoat. And that scapegoat became Christians, because Christians were so despised and hated throughout the, uh, the empire. Tacitus said this, Consequently, to get rid of the rumors of the report of him setting the city on fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. They were called Christians by the populace. And so mockery of every sort was slandered against them. Um, even at their deaths, they would be covered with skins of beasts, so that the dogs would tear them uh, and, and um, slaughter them as they chased them with these uh, beasts' skins. Uh, they were nailed to crosses to their death, and some were even doomed to be posted on high and lit as illumination in the night as the daylight had expired. So a brutal time in some very obvious ways that believers were suffering and persecuted and experiencing pain. But beyond that formal persecution really was a lot of other informal persecution. So the, the letter of First Peter doesn't really get into Nero himself. There may, could, could be references to him, but more you, you read in here some of the more informal ways that believers are slandered and, and persecuted. So three things about this. First of all, there was public interest in mocking, slandering, persecuting Christians. There was a lot of uh, curiosity about them. Christians were just basically strange or weird. They were slandered as uh, committing outrageous, outrageous crimes, uh, wicked and evil deeds. And even they were slandered as being cannibals and people who committed incest. So the rumors and the slander just kind of self-propagated without a lot of evidence and facts. Um, the practices of eating the, uh, 
body and drinking the blood of Christ were blown out of proportion. Their references to one another as brothers and sisters was used against them. And basically, it's just basically a PR move, though be an informal one, where uh, they just were subjects of being persecuted based just on the, the rumors that floated in that day. So that's one thing. The other thing is this, that there was a legal basis to persecute Christians. In fact, the Roman legal system didn't require anything more than just a prosecutor. Uh, could have been any kind of an accuser, whether it's a, a, a public office holder or someone in an official position. Um, they could bring this charge against a Christian at will. Uh, the only charge that had to be given was the charge of Christianity. So that was a legal claim for a crime that you're a Christian. And then a governor of a province just willing to punish on that charge. So it was pretty whimsical that uh, the -the run-of-the-mill citizens could bring these kinds of things. And Christians would even be brought to their death. But even a greater uh, thing than that was just the Pax Romana, just the peace of the kingdom. So governors of provinces didn't want to be the troublemakers. They certainly didn't want Nero down their throat. And anything that would stir up trouble was an opportunity for a governor to squash. And so Christians were always a flashpoint. In fact, they were seen as such a superstitious cult. And actually the truth was probably never pursued in the scandalous rumors and... um, um, PR move was probably the cause greater than actual facts of whether they were literally guilty of these charges. So you had external, informal, you had external, um, informal. But then to put on top of all that, you also had internal persecution. So you had Jews and Christians and the battle of the gospel and the mystery of the gospel that Paul was bringing and had brought and the fact of the conflict inside, so to speak, the church, um, was going on as well. And uh, later on in the, in the epistle, in chapter 4, Peter says this, It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So it doesn't really tell us anything more specific. Uh, these are all extra-biblical uh, except uh, the passages we refer to, that speak to the things that they were going through. So we really don't know specifics. We don't know what individuals may have been going through. We don't know what specific families may have been going through, uh, specific groups, um, house churches, what they were actually experiencing. We just know really the overall situation. And it really speaks to the timelessness of this message. Um, and the possibilities really are endless. And so we are able to glean from this truth for ourselves, even beyond the application that was true for them at that time. Um, So I'm going to ask you this question. So how often are we prone many times um, to not want to go through the process? How often are we prone to not want to have to go through the steps of every trial, struggle, persecution that comes our way? Um, I know uh, personally, I... uh, Understanding the truth of the word where the Lord has, has taught, um, knowing what he's doing, knowing he controls, understanding God's sovereignty. In my own flesh, I want to just take care of things and be done with them. 
you know, and not have to go through these steps, not have to go through these processes. And yet God works providentially through all the minor details that he puts in our way. Um, and so we, we have no choice. We have to walk the steps that he intricately puts in our paths. So from our perspective, many times we're, we're prone to get uh, fixated on secondary causes, secondary purposes, secondary processes, and we stop seeing the sovereign hand of God in those things. Um, so there are direct situations, direct individuals, direct events, direct whatevers that we experience. But in the grand scheme of God's hand, those are just tools, his secondary uses of tools to bring things into our lives, to shape us and mold us and walk us through each step of the process of those trials. So that's the way the Lord works. These things happen. They happen on our behalf. They happen within his sovereign control and in his secure care. And I'm reminded in James 4, verse 4, where it says, um, or James 1, verse 4, is where it says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So we want to so many times kick against those things. It's in our flesh to do that. We, we want to resist and we want to take our own directions and we want to take our own wisdom. And yet the Lord is using those things to mold us and shape us and carry us through a process that we kick against the whole time. Um, and yet it's his method and his way letting steadfastness, if we will remain faithful, have its full effect on us to bring us out to the other side. So what do you say to people who are, who are going through especially difficult situations? Um, Peter does give us what he says to these people. But what do we want to say? Uh, sometimes we're, we're tempted just to tell people to man up or, or just suck it up or just get with the program. Or we're tempted to cheer people on, give them a, a nice inspirational song, a quote, a poem. There's so many ways people like to encourage one another, and those things may be fine. But uh, a book to read, even, an expert to listen to, um, those things may be helpful at some point. But Peter, really here, uh, doesn't come out and do any of those things. He just reminds them of some unchangeable truths about their lives as believers. And he doesn't really dump the data on them all at once because he gets to more tough talk later in the epistle. He really just brings to them a patient, shepherding, unfolding reminder of what they are as believers. And he takes great care in uncovering that truth for them and getting it into their hearts. And then the verses we read, he gets to what's really in their heart all along their love for the Lord, the love that is not even proven to them through their own sight. So look at verse 3. Let's, let's walk through these verses before we find our way back to verse 8. Verse 3, so Peter, he's talking to these individuals, these, um, these believers, and I didn't uh, cover the rest of verse 2, but uh, they are elect, God's foreknowledge, sanctification, and their obedience to Christ, and for the the uh, permanence of the covenants and the covenant sign of the sprinkling with his blood. 
But then in verse 3, he reminds them, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A doxological phrase that in three places of Scripture um, you'll find. And I'm sure one you can think of. Anyone remember? There's another well-known passage that starts out very identical, same words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You didn't study for this, right? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's verse 3 as well. 2 or 3. Yeah. And then 1 Corinthians 3 is the other place. But a doxological phrase that prob- probably was familiar uh, in those days. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he launches out. Remember these things. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. So we'll stop right there and then we'll pick up in a little bit. So several things that Peter reminds them of, four really profound truths that that doxological phrase launches into. By God's mercy, four things. So there's life by birth. According to his great mercy, he's caused us. He went from you to the collective us in his use of pronouns. Caused us to be born again. Goes without saying, 100% of us in this room had nothing to do with our physical birth. No choice. It was just done for us. And we reap the benefits. And so our spiritual birth, no different. Completely outside of our control. Completely unknown to us. And it happens and we're awakened to it after the fact. So, uh, a birth, not of their own doing, he has caused us to be born again. And what are we born to, he says? A living hope. Not a dying hope, not a dead hope. Dreams die daily. Dreams die every day. But living hope sustains and lives, and it's based on a fact. The resurrection, through the resurrection, of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not the resuscitation but the rising and never again to die resurrection of Jesus Christ. A living hope. So a life by birth, a hope by resurrection. And then thirdly, an inheritance by deposit. So this resurrection from the dead gives us this hope. That in the next phrase says this, to an inheritance. Three things about this inheritance. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. So it's imperishable. Its duration never ends. It's undefiled. Its purity is unmarred. And it's unfading. Its quality will never be subpar. It will always be of highest quality. So duration, purity, and quality, they're awaiting for us. And then that inheritance is where? Kept in heaven for you awaiting for us, for you, he says to those believers, for you who, he renames them, by God's power are being guarded. So you are being guarded. The inheritance is being guarded. But what does it say right there? How is it being guarded? Through what? Faith. 
So, a salvation ready to be revealed, but it's through God's power being guarded through faith. Personally, on a human level, that seems really tentative to think that faith would be the thing that guards that inheritance, that guards my inheriting of that undefiled, unfading, imperishable inheritance. That that resurrection would be guarded with this faith. And yet, as Martin Luther, we're recognizing 500 years this week, recognized it was that faith and the righteousness not his own, not our own, that imputed that faith to us. And we are the inheritors of that faith. And yet that is the very guard, the very defense for us found in that faith that he gives to us. So four profound truths that he's reminding them. They're born not of themselves. They have hope through a factual resurrection. They have an inheritance that's been deposited, this perfect inheritance. And they are being guarded. It's a military term, actually. Guarded. Um, it's a, a fortress against those things that would, de- would destroy the faith. So a, dis- a security by defense. So he wants them to see these things, to know these things, to be reminded of these things. Um, if you uh, remember, uh, and if, if you will, you could turn there, Ephesians 1. Turn over to Ephesians 1 and verse 16. <clears throat> Peter's prayer for the, uh, excuse me, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians which touches on several of these things, uh, really dovetails well into this portion from Peter. So look at verse 16 and following of Ephesians 1. Um, Paul says there to the Ephesian believers, I don't or I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. There's some sight going on in that phrase because eyes are mentioned. Eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. Know what? First, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then verse 19. Third, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul wants those readers, those believers, to have sight in their heart, their eyes opened to this resurrection, to this revelation, to this hope, to this immeasurable greatness. And Peter, back in chapter 1 of his first epistle, is reminding them of a sight that they have, Not a physical, material one, but a sight, a wisdom and revelation of knowledge from from God himself to know these truths in their hearts. So the first place he takes them to encourage them is where it all began for them as believers. But then he goes and builds upon that in verse 8. So this is the salvation. He wraps it up in verse 5. And then in verse 8, he says, in this you rejoice. Absolutely, in this you rejoice. If you have nothing else but this, you've got everything. Because when this life is over, there is nothing else but this, or you have nothing. Sounds like double talk, but that's it. There is nothing else. 
And so he reminds them, regardless of what's going on, this is all that really, really matters. So you do rejoice. It does matter. It does impact you. But then he goes into their situation. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You have. So there's several things to note here. Uh, five things, in fact. So it says, though now. So, so they're actually happening in the present. Now. And then it says, for a little while. So they're now, but they're not forever. And they're only just really going to be a little while. So they're really rather brief and now. And then it says, if necessary. So they're actually purposeful. They're now, they're brief, and they're really for a reason. They're not pointless or wasteful. They actually have been put there for a purpose. And then you have been grieved. So they're painful. They hurt. They're troubling. And then that they are various trials. They aren't all the same. Different types, different origins, different impacts, different durations, different times. There's just a whole variety. It's multifaceted. Um, kind of hits on the, the word manifold, which in a car uh, disperses uh, the exhaust system. And so it's, it's a diversion. It's a, it's a dispersion of the many kind of different ways. So they're now, they're short, um, they're, they're needed, they're necessary, they, they hurt, they're painful, and they're of all different kinds. And yet... In the last part of that verse, he comes right back and says to them, um, in verse 7 following, so that, why? Here's some purpose. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. And then he goes into this uh, hyphenated part, more precious than gold. Your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And then the, the remaining part of the sentence may be found to result in three things, praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise, glory, and honor. So, who is getting the praise, the glory, and the honor? Who do you think? Christ. What about them? Do you think the you, the us, are getting it? How many of you think it's Christ? How many of you think it's the you? Nobody wants to commit. <laughs> Anybody read MacArthur's notes? I think he says it's them. The praise, glory, and honor is actually for them because the trials are reaping an eternal reward that they are going to receive. It doesn't preclude the fact that ultimately it is Christ receiving the praise, glory, and honor. But in this context, <clears throat> it could be shown that grammatically it would actually be praise, glory, and honor going to these believers, um, receiving the outcome of these trials and these persecutions. So a faith is more precious than gold, though tested by fire. And yet these trials, these now uh, purposeful, hurtful, um, and very different trials produce something of eternal value and actually praise, glory, and honor, not only that we would receive, but that we would then offer back to him. All right, so then we get to verse 8. So here's the connection. 
So all that to lead up to this, and that is this. These are true believers, and true believers love Christ. True believers um, follow him. True believers obey him. True believers are moved by him. And so he reminds them in the verses we started with, in verse 8, though you haven't seen him. No, you haven't. No, there's not been a time that you've actually seen him. That's the past. You have not seen him. Then he says this, though you do not now see him. So he's making a connection here between though you haven't seen him and though you do not now see him. So they didn't see him when all this happened, when they were birthed. They weren't there. It happened to them. They weren't there when he was resurrected from the dead. They haven't gone to heaven to see the imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Um, They have yet to see the full culmination of their faith that God is guarding all this with, that he's using in their lives. So they haven't seen all that. But now they don't see that either, physically, materially. Because they're going through these trials, and these trials are difficult. But he's building the case here to say, just as you haven't seen those things, that some are in the future but already have been made declared in the past. There's a past, present, future component to some of those things. Though you have not seen those things physically, materially, and you are confident of those things. Now, there's that same word now as the trials now and then the seeing now. Now, in those trials, that same not seeing can produce the same kind of love. So you haven't seen him, but you love him. Though you do not now see him, you do believe in him. And you do rejoice in him with joy. And look at the two modifiers for joy. Two things. It's inexpressible. So you really can't put the joy in words. It's not something you can really, though you try, you really can't bring it out. And not only is it without words, but it's also filled to capacity. It is filled with glory. So you didn't see him in your salvation, and you don't see him in your trials. I'm talking about the physical material sight. But you do see him with the eyes of faith in your salvation and those things provided. And you can see him in those trials, predicated on the past, predicated on what's been done for you. You can do this now and see him in all those intricate details and all those things that he's working out. So sight or lack of sight typically would lead to thoughts of people who are deprived or alienated or excluded or confused. If you can't see unless you're familiar already in some other way, you really are lost. I mean, you don't know how to make your way around. So do you, do you ever or have you ever practiced this by closing your eyes in certain situations? I, I practice this every day when I get ready to go to work. Uh, the room is dark and I'm feeling my way around, but I know where things are. But if I didn't know where they were, and one of the uh, probably the most um, uh, shocking situations, if you're ever driving and you lose your sight for one reason or another, especially if you're on the expressways of Atlanta, um, and that's happened to me, I know, and I'm sure it's probably happened maybe to some of you. You're completely disoriented. You're completely alienated. There's not going to be a good outcome. That's the thought. When you don't know where you're going, there's going to be a problem. 
And it could be significant. It could be serious. So for an unbeliever, if they read this and say, you're believing in things, you're loving things, you're rejoicing in things, you're expecting things from something you don't see, it just completely doesn't register for them. Uh, It just doesn't make any sense. It's nonsense. It's illogical. It's irrational. And yet for us, are we deluded? Are we just strange? Are we just weird? Or do we see something that the eyes of our flesh does not see? And why do we see it? Well, there's the reminders that these things have been done for us and that the Spirit has opened those eyes for us. So would you... Would a lack of sight actually lead to love? Really? Would a lack of sight actually lead to belief? Really? Would it actually lead to joy? And, and, and would it actually lead to uh, uh, an anticipation of a future? Um, yes. And even I'm reminded in 1 John four twelve where John says that no one has ever seen God. In the context of that same chapter, though, Believers see God in one another through their love for one another. And so there's many ways that the heart has eyes and is enlightened by faith. In fact, uh, what's the passage that we usually go to that defines faith for us? Hebrews 11.1. It's an assurance without sight. And it's a conviction of things not seen. And yet, assurance and conviction reside in the heart. And there's a faith that does that force. And I love the way Paul said it in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, that our hearts have been enlightened. So was Peter given a testimony to these believers? I think that he was. And in fact, I think there's a sense in which for Peter... He was different than they were. Um, They had not seen Christ, but they loved him. They do not now see him, but they loved him. But Peter couldn't say that because Peter did see him. In fact, he says uh, in this same book in chapter 5, he was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. And in his second epistle, tells the readers there that he's an eyewitness to the transfiguration. So Peter did see Jesus. He was with him. He did remember all those events, probably. He had a reference point. And yet he was encouraging believers who didn't have that vantage and citing in their lives the fact that they loved, rejoiced, believed without the very thing he himself had the advantage of. Um, 1 John 3, 1 and 2 um, is such a, a blessed portion of scripture for us and um, excites my heart for the last part of the verse 9 that we read in 1 Peter and that is this. We are God's children now, verse 2 of uh, 1 John 3, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we will be like him because we will see him as he is. The excitement in the heart of a believer is to see his or her Savior at the end. I mean, really, what else would make heaven better? Nothing. (laughs) There's nothing else there that's even better because he is everything. So verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is a passive 
just like the birth was a passive. Um, this obtaining is not achieving. This, this is not um, a trial and test that we've passed because we've worked to get the results, because we've achieved some results. The, the, the verb here is a passive um, voice, and it means that it's being something that's being acted upon. And so this obtaining is something that's actually being granted. It's not something that's being achieved. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. So all these trials, all these workings, all these things, really, yeah, they bring praise, glory, and honor back in several verses. Verse 5, I think it was, uh, or verse 6. But the outcome of it all has still been done for us, done to us. Actually, uh, we could read it this way. Receiving for yourselves the end of your faith. Receiving for yourselves the end of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Just like your birth. So it's all faith. It's all faith. Faith alone. Thinking back to um, 500 years ago and the landmark date of the Reformation. So this was uh, Martin Luther's... um, Revelation, when he came to Christ himself, looking back, and, and this, this idea of faith and the appropriation of faith was a difficult hurdle because he was in a works-based religion. So uh, his most hated passage, uh, which we call now the famous Reformation text, Romans 1.17, says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Actually, a quote from Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And he hated that righteousness because it was God's righteousness. And that righteousness is the righteousness that condemns and sends souls to hell. And so he said, I hated the word righteousness, which I have been taught to understand is the righteousness which God punishes unrighteous sinners Then he testifies, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. But at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, quote, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And then Luther said, there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. And that's when the lights came on for Luther. And he said, you mean here, Paul's talking about a righteousness that God gives freely by His grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own? And the answer is a bold yes. It is that faith, it is that guarding faith, it is the faith that sees, that has eyes of the heart enlightened to see the truths that stirs up love and joy and anticipation and obedience and belief in our hearts that lead us to an ultimate culmination, obtaining the outcome of that faith, the salvation of our souls. Joy and love for Christ is surely the true mark of a true Christian. So let's finish with uh, chapter 5, verse 10. So if you're still First Peter, look at verse 10. There's a lot between where we were in chapter 5, verse 10, but we'll finish with this. Peter reminds them it's just a little brief time. He says this, After you have suffered a little while, 
this God, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, and I love the pronoun, himself, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do we encourage our hearts through trials? We focus on the truths of our salvation. We focus on our Savior, who by faith we see. And we know that he brings us to the ultimate culmination, that we see our hope set fully on the revelation of Jesus Christ for praise, glory, and honor, and receive the outcome of our faith. Uh, Let's bow for prayer.